there. I'm your friend Bev, host of Stop Psychoanalyzing Me, a podcast about mental health. I interview experts and ask questions about mental disorders that all of us might be curious about. Come join me. Christina Lee is a grief and palliative care counselor at the Dr. J Children's Grief Center, a not-for-profit charity organization in Toronto. Christina is a registered psychotherapist and has a Master of Arts in Spiritual Care and Psychotherapy. Her psychotherapy background is in art therapy, having completed her graduate training at the Toronto Art Therapy Institute. Welcome to the show, Christina. Yeah, thanks for having me here, Beth. My name is Christina Lee. I'm a grief and palliative care counselor at the Dr. J Children's Grief Center in Toronto. I'm a registered psychotherapist, a professional art therapist with my graduate training from the Art Therapy Institute here in Toronto. And I just finished a master's in spiritual care and psychotherapy. Very cool. So my first question for you, Christina, is... What exactly does a grief counselor do? So I like to explain to all the kids that I see that I feel like I have the best job in the world because I spend all of my days with kids and teens and we do games and artwork to really express ourselves in a safe um, way and explore and understand our grief in the space where we get to talk about stuff that nobody else really talks about. Mm -hmm. It really feels like grief is something that is sort of left unsaid in society and yet is something that we probably all experience at some point in our lives. Yeah, absolutely. We definitely live in a death phobic society. I'm very curious and, and I'm going to just ask this very basic question. What exactly is grief? Yeah, so very simply... Grief is the thoughts and feelings we have after a loss. And this can be the loss of a person through death or the loss of a relationship because of a breakup or we've moved to a new place or a new school. It can be loss of a meaningful object. Okay. And when you say thoughts and feelings about loss, can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah. So in the context of my work as a grief counselor, some of the common feelings we talk about in our sessions include sadness, feeling angry because it feels really unfair to have lost their person, frustrated, confused about what happened, maybe feelings of guilt that maybe we should have done more or could have done more. And it can also include relief that the person is no longer in pain. Maybe we didn't have the best relationship with them. All those thoughts and feelings that we have are normal and okay. And so we explore and express those in our sessions together. Something I've always been curious about is what is the difference between grief and maybe a clinical mental health condition like depression, which might also be characterized by intense feelings of sadness? That's a really great question and a very interesting question. So some of, I would say some of the symptoms overlap. When it comes to grief, we know that there are changes that happen in the brain and it can cause changes in energy levels, in our motivation. It can create changes in our sleep or maybe 
things that we used to enjoy doing, we don't want to do anymore because it can be a grief trigger. And that intense feeling of sadness, maybe the emptiness, hopelessness, even things like trouble concentrating or focusing, making decisions. I see overlaps there between grief and depression. I think the main difference that I notice is that grief is a natural response to a loss and grief is universal. It's the experience that every single person on earth will share, whether it be the loss of a person or place or a thing. And depression isn't a universal experience, right? It's a very common one that we often talk about, especially with Bell Let's Talk Day that has just passed. But there can be lots of different ways that depression can be treated, whether it be therapy or medication. Whereas I don't think of grief as a as an illness or a diagnosis, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting. It's almost like we don't want to pathologize or make grief into a disorder, but rather think of it as a natural process that we all go through at some point in our lives when we lose something meaningful to us. Yeah, beautifully said. If grief is commonplace, everyone experiences it, Is there any research on why it can just be so painful for folks? Yeah, so lots of research actually shows that emotional pain activates the same regions of the brain as physical pain does. And so emotional pain is valid, and that's why it hurts so much. And just because we can't see it or measure it doesn't necessarily mean that it's not real. And are there different kinds of grief or different severities of grief? How do folks in your field think of grief? It's an interesting question. I think it really depends on the individual experience that shapes the point of reference. So if a person has only experienced, and I say only very lightly, if their only point of reference to death and grief is the loss of a pet, then the most painful loss that they might have experienced might be the loss of their dog or cat. And my dog actually died last year. So um, I'm sorry. I know that that can be a very painful experience because pets are, they're part of our families. Mm -hmm, For sure. But I think it really depends on the relationship. And that's what it comes down to is our relationship and the attachment that correlates to the amount of pain that we can experience. Because I often hear from our youth group that, you know, I talked about, you know, the fact that my mom had died. And one of my friends said, oh, I know exactly what that feels like because my cat died. And they felt extremely invalidated by that Mm -hmm. response. Yes. Which is understandable. And yet if that person's relationship to this animal was the only relationship that was meaningful in their life because they have a mom and dad, but they're not close at all. And this animal is the only thing that's gotten them through different challenges of life. Then I can understand why that grief could be so significant and why they're saying, I understand how you feel. But the reality is that we never truly know what the experience of grief is like in other people because our pain tolerance and our 
pain experience is so diverse. Yeah, it reminds me of what you were saying off the top that maybe some folks even feel relief. Maybe they feel guilt, mm -hmm. anger. It can look like all sorts of different things for different people. Is it abnormal to not grieve the loss of someone or something meaningful to us? That's an interesting question and one that I wonder about. Where does it come from and what does our idea of grief look like? I often hear that people understand grief as a single emotion of sadness. And so some people might feel, well, I'm not grieving because I don't feel sad. But grief can be so many different things other than sadness, which includes changes in life and navigating secondary losses. So maybe not just the loss of the person, but loss of a relationship, loss of a shared past together. Yeah, I'm even thinking of a loss of routine. Yeah, loss of routine, loss of the familiar. But I will say that with a lot of the kids and the youth that we work with, grief just looks very different for every single person. I'll share a personal story. So when I was in elementary school, a little boy unfortunately passed away due to a heart condition that no one knew about. And I just remember upon reflection, all of us fifth graders had very different experiences to the death. And mm -hmm. I remember being in fifth grade and seeing all my classmates' reactions and thinking that some of them just seemed strange some kids were saying things like, oh, I don't care. He's dead. And looking back, even though that was such a harsh thing to hear as a fifth grader, mm -hmm. I'm thinking that was probably that small child's way of coping to kind of maybe push away the memory of this person or to suppress thoughts or feelings about the loved one. Is that a common reaction that you see in the kids you work with or even adults who grieve? That's another interesting question. Well, I think about it from the brain perspective, from a neuroscience perspective, we know that our brain is conditioned to do the things that feel good and avoid the things that feel hard or feel bad. And so avoidance or you know, distancing ourselves from the things that feel hard seem like a pretty normal and valid thing to do. Right. And that might look like in a child, an anger response or, yeah, some kind of pushing away of that memory or maybe mm -hmm. making that person out to be less important than they were. Another question I, I'm really thinking about is sometimes we are anticipating a loss. We have a family member who's ill and we know that their death is imminent, to put it lightly. Is there such a thing as anticipatory grief, like a grief response that kind of comes on even before a loss? Yeah, absolutely. So we, at the center, we actually work with families who are deemed palliative. So the person is um, going to die within six months. That's our eligibility criteria. And so within that six months, we often work with the whole family around anticipatory grief. And anticipatory grief can look quite similar to the grief after a person has died. So some of the sad, intense sadness, um, anger, frustration, confusion, 
all of those things can be part of anticipatory grieving. What we do know is that in our work, even though families know that the person is going to die, it doesn't make the grief that happens after death easier, right? Just because we're expecting something to happen doesn't always mean that it prepares us for when it actually happens. And I'm wondering, do you work with families after the loved one has passed on? Yeah, we do. It really depends on the family and their needs, but sometimes we do continue working with the family from the palliative referral to a bereavement. Mm. And so you see a family through transition where they once had a, a loved one in the family and then now unfortunately don't. What's that like for you as a grief counselor to see that transition? I'm first thinking about the word loved one in that we often say, we often refer to the person who has died as the person or to the person who has died only because not everyone has a positive relationship with a person who has died. And so sometimes when we say grieving the loss of a loved one, there are certain assumptions that are made on what the relationship may have been like. And so what the normal, quote unquote, normal reaction should be like. And so the reason why we refer to the deceased as the person is to create room for all relationship dynamics that can happen and in our families, within friendships, within colleagues, whatever that might look like. It's almost like if we refer to them as a loved one, it maybe makes us feel shame if we don't grieve in a way we feel is socially acceptable. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, I would say as a grief counselor, there's this beautiful relationship that can happen when working with kids in that I've had this gift of being able to spend time with their mom or dad before they died and got to ask questions that maybe the child didn't think to ask themselves or even adults in that time of crisis or intensity can't think of those questions, of course, right? Because our brain is in survival mode. And so it allows for this um, transition and legacy piece to survive because I'm now able to say, hey, you know what? Your mom really found this important and wanted this for you. And it helps with some of the storytelling and I would say continuing bonds so that we can continue that relationship even after the person has died. I'm getting choked up hearing about that. And I'm just wondering what kinds of questions do you ask the child or the family members in those sessions preparing for the death of this child? There can be so many different questions depending on the family and depending on the context, like what the illness may be, how long they've been sick when they were diagnosed, how the person is coping with the diagnosis or the prognosis, um, the time that the person has left to live. And, you know, some of the questions I've talked with caregivers include when you first found out that you were pregnant with your son or daughter, let's say Riley, what did you think? What were some of those thoughts that you had? What did you feel in that moment? What did your partner say? What was their reaction like? 
And what did mom and dad do while while you were pregnant? What kind of things were done? Would you talk to your belly? Did you read books or listen to music together? And when Riley was born, how did you choose that name, Riley? And what were your thoughts when you first held Riley? Did you have any hopes and dreams for Riley? Just looking at that little, cute little bundle. Who was in the room? What do you remember? Some of those questions about our birth stories can be such an integral part of our identity. Hey everyone, Yuri here, Bev's podcast partner. I'm here to let you know about another podcast about grief featuring Toronto-based comedian and writer Shohana Sharman. Finders Grievers is a podcast about the people we have lost and the lessons we have picked up along the way. It features conversations with artists, comedians, and writers about their grief in order to unpack the universally felt, though rarely discussed, experience of grieving. Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts. And you mentioned, too, working with the family after a loss might involve building a legacy. That's the term that you used around uh, the life of the person who passed away. Now, I know from experience and, and anecdote and from friends that sometimes regret comes along with grief, maybe feeling mm-hmm. like they didn't spend enough time with the loved one, or maybe they're not doing enough to preserve mm-hmm. such a legacy. And I'm wondering if you could speak to that point. Is that a common experience? And if so... How can folks cope with that experience? Yeah, this was one of those questions where I had so many questions about this idea of not doing enough to remember your person. I wondered about where that guilt comes from and not enough for whom, right? Yeah, I think that's such an important point. So this was a question actually submitted by an Instagram follower. When I followed up, I think some of the thinking was that they maybe felt shame or like they were Mm -hmm. a bad family member to this person because they might not be mourning them Mm -hmm. enough or they might not be talking about them enough or they might not be honoring them enough. And again, of course, this idea of enough is different for every person. But I do Mm -hmm. think that this experience is somewhat universal in that I know at least for myself, family members or friends have passed away and I've had that nagging thought of, oh, I should have just given them one last call. And I guess I'm wondering if you'd have any tips or coping advice for those kinds of thoughts where there's a little bit of regret or maybe shame or guilt Mm -hmm. that coincide with the grief. Yeah, I think it's such a great point and a very common experience, I would say, I think I would first want to say I have such great empathy for that experience and that must feel really hard to be holding that feeling of, oh, if I, if only, right? If only I got to have one more conversation or maybe I should have visited that that more often. That's hard to sit with that. And so how can we extend, well, how can we be gentle with ourselves in those moments? I think one of the challenges of this feeling of not having done enough or feeling of regret that we didn't have 
the kind of relationship that we wished we could have, or maybe we could have repaired if they were alive to do that repairing. It sounds really difficult to grapple with accepting that the person is gone and that there really isn't anything more you can do for them or any way you could continue to build that relationship because they have passed away. Yeah, I think that permanence and the irreversibility um, of death feels really hard. And often with death and grief comes a lot of uncertainty. And as humans, we don't like uncertainty. And so sometimes the way that we can cope with it, our brain automatically looks to reason and fault. That if we can figure out a reason or blame someone, even if it's myself for it, and we know we feel that with certainty, there's a sense of comfort that can come from that. And so with that feeling of not having done enough, I would invite those folks to be gentle and think about, you know, if this were a friend thinking this, what kind of things would you say to them? And how would you support them? Usually with friends or family members and say, of course it wasn't your fault. And you did what you could with what you were able to at the time. As we all do, we can only do what we can with what we know and what we have access to. And so as we grow and evolve and develop, we have more resources and maybe more capacity to have done more. But understanding that if we look at the context and the timeline of things, there were probably reasons why you didn't. And that's okay. That sounds like such a validating approach, thinking about how it made perfect sense why you didn't reach out to that person before they passed away. How could you have known, perhaps, that they were Mm -hmm. about to pass away? Yeah, so I would say just be gentle on yourself. And I will say that back in the day, in the 60s, when we when Elizabeth Kubler-Ross talked about the five stages of grieving, I think in the first page, she talks about the fact that grief isn't supposed to be linear. And when she talked about the five stages, they weren't meant to be a step-by-step-by-step approach. And yet that piece seems to get lost in history. And we always remember the five stages of grief as this linear process that we should follow. But what we know is that avoidance and distraction is a normal part of grief and we can't be grieving 24 hours seven days a Mm -hmm. week and so when we have that time to do the things that we enjoy and have moments where we don't think about the person who died it doesn't make you a bad person it makes you a human who's grieving and living You mentioned the five stages of grief and we've probably all heard them, but I'd love for you to remind us of what they are and if possible, maybe speak to the accuracy of these five stages. Do do all five stages happen for everyone? It's a great question. So the five stages of grief include denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And you may at different points in your life, reach some of these in different intensities, but you might not. And I think that's okay. There's this one really great, kind of like a bell curve image that we use in our slideshows when we talk to caregivers about Grief 101. And 
in that curve, there's actually something like 20 different feeling words like shock, numbness, emotional outbursts, anger, fear, disorganization, guilt, loneliness, depression, uh, new relationships, and it goes on. And so we have this idea that it's supposed to be this clean, certain linear process. And if you Google stages of grief on online, the bell curve that's right next to it is filled with scribbles. And so we know that it's not a linear process, mm-hmm. but that we actually bounce around from different experiences at different points of our life. Now, I know we talked earlier about this tendency to pathologize or to make grief perhaps into a disorder. I know that psychologists and psychiatrists love putting labels on human experiences and putting them in the big book of (laughs) mental disorders that we call the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders 5 or the DSM-5. However, I have heard of conditions in which grief just seems unrelenting, folks cannot function, and from my understanding, this is considered a persistent complex bereavement disorder, or perhaps I've also heard it called complicated grief. And I was just wondering, what are your thoughts on that? Is that helpful to think of folks with this abnormal grieving process? Is that helpful? And then secondarily, I'd be interested in knowing at what point should folks reach out for help where grief is feeling abnormal? Yeah, these are great questions, Bev. I would say, you know, at the center, we don't I mean, I'm a registered psychotherapist, so I don't go with the DSM categories. When I was looking at the DSM-5, some of the questions I had around complex grief were some of the some of the wording around it. You know, it defined complex sorry, it defined persistent complex bereavement disorder as prolonged grieving. And at some point it talked about six months as a time frame as well. But I would really wonder and question where the prolonged comes from, what prolonged looks like, because prolonged time for, let's say, a six-year-old might look very different than a 36-year-old. And talking about the ways in which it interferes with and where that comes from, because I think depending on our social locations, Some of us have the privilege of being able to take time off of work, being able to go to a grief center such as ours, and it feels feels like a privileged way of doing grief. Whereas depending on intersectionality and different barriers that exist, not everyone has the option to take that time off of work. Not everyone has the vacation day or the loo time to be able to take the day off of work to take their kids to a grief counselor. And so I think it really just depends on the individual, their relationship with a person, and some of their internal protective factors, like different resources for coping that they may have, different support networks that they may have within their support system, 
and different access to resources. I think those all have an influence. Absolutely. And just so folks know, Christina used the term intersectionality, which is a term coined by Kimberly Crenshaw. And it basically refers to as all of the different ways that aspects of ourselves kind of overlap. So things like finances, race, disability or ability, sexual orientation, etc. All of these things um, influence the ways in which we see the world and the privileges that we carry. And I love this idea that well, I don't love this idea, but I'm interested in this idea <laughs> that grief, which is a commonplace experience, is completely influenced by the intersections that we occupy. So I think you use the term mm -hmm. social location. So it, it mm -hmm. might be very different for a white woman to receive grief counseling versus uh, a black man, for example. Right, because we are conditioned according to our gender. And so we live within these expectations that culture and society has set out for us. And oftentimes talking about our feelings is seen as a weakness, even with women. And so when we add layers of culture or religious upbringing or different stereotypes that are expected of us, depending on who we are as a whole person, it can add complexities to the grieving process. Mm -hmm. And I can just imagine how you as a grief counselor probably sees how these intersections play out, even in the therapy room. For example, belief in a higher power versus atheism, for instance, mm -hmm. would probably totally influence one's grieving process. Yeah, and I find oftentimes it comes down to the meaning-making aspect of it. Are we able to formulate, formulate meaning out of our experience in a way that is significant to us? Or does it feel like there's no point to all of this? I want to circle back to a question I asked earlier. At what point do you think it's important for someone to seek help with their grief? It really depends on the person again. And I wish I had a clear cut answer of here are the check marks to look for. And this is how you know when to seek help. It really just depends on the person because not everyone requires grief counseling. Um, for some people, they have the supports in place where they have a safe space to feel heard and understood and can talk openly about whatever they're feeling and whatever that looks like and receive the support through their social networks. For others, they want and need the support right after the person has died. I often see families months or even years after the person has died because then finally it feels like, okay, I think I can start to talk about this. Up until now, it felt like it was too much. It felt too hard. And so we don't want to force counseling on anyone. But thinking about, I think about the three areas that I 
and look for in our counseling is the person able to express their emotions in a way that feels right for them whether that's through talking or writing or singing or dancing or whatever that expression looks like secondly are there the tools for coping are you able to respond to the emotions that come up in a way where you're not oozing grief in ways that you don't want them to come out in that can be being irritable with our partners or our children or having unexpected crying happen in the middle of a grocery store, which happens to so many people who are grieving. And then third, I look for continuing bonds. So are you able to still have a relationship with a person, whatever that may look like? And I understand that you primarily work with children, but it was interesting to hear that sometimes you work with folks who've been grieving for several years, and I imagine some of those folks are adults. How does grief look different in children versus adults? Yeah, so I love this question, and I'll use a quote by Julia Stokes from Winston's Wish, and she said, for adults, grief is like wading through this enormous river, whereas for children, it's puddle jumping. But when they're in that puddle, it's no different to the river. And what we mean by that is that for kids, kids are so great in jumping from the grief puddle to the play puddle and alternating back and forth. And they do so quite easily. And so oftentimes parents will say, Christina, my kid looks like he's doing perfectly fine. He's playing with Legos. He's out playing with his friends. Is he really grieving? Like, should I worry? And yes, that is totally normal. And kids regulate through play. And so... Often, it's quite normal for us to see kids playing out death or illness with their toys, and it's not something to be worried about. As we get older, it becomes harder to jump back and forth from those puddles. And so for adults, once we're in the grief puddle or the wave, it becomes harder to pivot into the play. That makes a lot of sense to me, and I love that metaphor. I think that's so helpful. We've talked a lot about the pain of grief today, and I'm wondering if there are actually any positives that can come from the grieving process. Yeah, so we have this word, it's called post-traumatic growth. And very simply, it's the idea of finding benefits or values, lessons that we have learned as a result of adversity. And so same happens with grief and We've sometimes referred to it as the gifts of grief at the center. And this can be increased empathy and understanding for others. It can be having more perspective. A lot of the teens I work with say, you know, I have all these big ideas and worries and concerns. And my friend is worried about something they saw on TikTok. And so this idea of perception and priorities become quite different when we've experienced adversity or loss. And the last thing that I often see is, is an understanding, a deep-seated understanding of the preciousness of life and how short life is. And so really valuing the relationships that we have in our lives, the opportunities that come our way, and to really live fully and appreciate those moments. It's like grief gives us a deeper insight into the meaning of connecting with others and maybe even the meaning of our own lives 
We're soon to wrap up, but Christina, I just wanted to ask you if there are any common misconceptions about grief. I think we identified one in that grief is not a single emotion or something that happens at one time point, but are there any Mm -hmm. other common misconceptions about grief? Yeah, this is a great question. There's actually quite a lot of misconceptions about grief, and it inspired a series on our social media called Webster Wednesdays. And we have a butterfly in our logo, and butterflies are a symbol for children's grief. And our butterfly is named Webster, and so every Wednesday we have a series where we do a little bit of myth-busting. It started in September of 2020 during the pandemic, And we talk openly about them. And so some of the most common ones include grief is a single emotion, but also that grief follows a similar path and timeline for everybody. Or another one is that when you're done grieving, life returns to normal. Or if you aren't crying, then you're not grieving. And with working with children, we often hear ideas that you know, it's best to protect children from the truth. So I'm not going to tell them how their person died or the kind of relationship that I had with them. And because kids are involved, I just need to stay strong and focus all of my energies and attentions on my kids and their grief. And so we talk about these every week on Wednesday about, about why they're not true or why they're just a little bit true. I love that idea. And I think that's such an important message that it's okay to be sad and it's okay to feel grief. And it's okay if our children see us grieving. We don't have to be afraid of it. Yeah, it's actually a really great way of modeling for kids that it's okay to grieve. And grief is such a normal part of our life. And as caregivers and parents, parents just want to protect the kids from pain. But the reality is that the pain will always be there at different stages of life. And the best way that we can support kids is by allowing them to acknowledge their emotions, to express it in a healthy way, to be supported by a community around them, whether it's friends or family members, and talk about ways that we can do goodbyes in a healthy way and remember them and keep the person in our lives, if that's something that feels meaningful. How can I support a loved one who is grieving? Really great questions. I think the first thing I would say would be to not make assumptions about what their needs may be. I think wanting to figure out a way to support the people that we love and care about tells me that you really love and care about them. And one of the best ways that we can support people is by asking them and talking about them to start to have an open and honest conversation and a dialogue about what their needs are. One of the things that we often see is that because we live in a death phobic society, people tiptoe around the person who have a grief experience. And because of this, the burden of responsibility of asking for help, of bringing them up in a conversation, that weight lays solely with the person who is bereaved. And the best way that I've found that we can support them is by saying, you know, I really care about you and I feel really awkward because I don't know how to talk about this and I don't know what to say. I don't know how to support you. 
Do you want to talk about your person? Do you want to go for a coffee? Do you want to just go for a walk and be with? So not making assumptions, offering some choices and letting them know that they're not alone and they're grieving can make a world of difference. I love that so much. And finally, what are some key takeaways about grief that you would like our listeners to leave with today? I would love everyone to know that grief is a unique experience for every single individual. Even if you're in the same family, each family member can grieve very differently and that's okay. Your feelings are your feelings. And I hope that as you go through the lifelong journey of grief, knowing that grief changes and ebbs and flows over time, that in each stage you find comfort and connection um, and the support of the people that, that love you and care about you. I think a lot of people needed to hear that. Thank you so much for being on the show, Christina. This was so enlightening. Thank you for having me. And that was today's episode. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast was hosted by Bev Catherine and produced by Yuri Hladio. Podcasting isn't free. Consider supporting the podcast by becoming a patron on patreon.com. You'll get early access to episodes and other exclusive content. You can find us on patreon.com slash stop psychoanalyzing me. Until next time. Yeah.